Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation with some of the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we've been working for 50 years to protect endangered species and ecosystems. With this podcast, we want to introduce our audience to some of today's key players in conservation and share the amazing work being done around the globe to protect our planet's rich biodiversity. So, uh, we're here today with actually NatureServe's Congressman Don Byer. Don serving in his third term in the U.S. House of Representatives from Virginia's 8th Congressional District, where I also happen to live. Uh, he serves on the House Committees on Ways and Means and Science, Space, and Technology, which if I was a congressman, I would definitely want to be on that committee. Uh, and he's the co-chair of the New Democratic Coalition's Climate Change Task Force, and serves on the Endangered Species Act Caucus, which, uh, or is on the Endangered Species Act Caucus, which I love because I think we need more people in Congress thinking about endangered species on a regular basis. So we're, we're excited about that. Uh, Congressman Byer also served as Lieutenant Governor of Virginia from 1990 to 1998, and was the ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein under President Obama before uh, going into Congress. So, Congressman, welcome to Conservation Conversations with Sean O'Brien. Sean, thank you for the invitation to be with you. I'm excited to talk about Nature Serve and all that you're doing and things we're trying to support you with on the Hill. Well, we really appreciate that, and we really appreciate your interest in in things related to wildlife. And I actually wanted to sort of jump right in with that because you've actually introduced legislation related to the conservation of wildlife. So I wanted to ask you to take a minute to tell us a little bit about the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act and what's happened with that and, and sort of what inspired you to, to introduce that legislation. Well, the uh, one is interesting when I first got there, um, in January of, 19, of 2015. Um, that was at a time during the late Obama administration when Fish and Wildlife was talking about delisting uh, the, the timber wolf, the gray wolf here in the United States. And I'd been, if I, you jump back 40 years, one of my favorite books was Never Cry Wolf by Farley Mowat. Of course, yes. Uh, and in fact, I... I I've often told my four children, the only reason I had children was so that I could read them, Never Cry Wolf, because uh, I just loved it so much. And then in my early adulthood, I read Barry Holston Lopez's Of Wolves of Men, one of the very few books I've ever cried about in my life, um, the absolute destruction of wolves in the lower 48. It poisoned, trapped, shot, just terrible things. And uh, so I had a chance to sign on to a letter about um, keeping the, the wolves on the endangered species list. Turned out that it was in my first year in office representing Northern Virginia, uh, Alexandria, Arlington, where there are no wolves. It was the single thing that I got the most letters about from my constituents, most letters, most phone calls. And um, it fed right into what I deeply cared about and believed anyway. So I, I thank you. You know, uh, I've often believed that the most important part of trying to be a leader on any given issue is raising your hand. And so I tried to raise my hand for endangered species with uh, with many of my colleagues, including Debbie Dingle, whose husband was part of writing the original Endangered Species Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also, in those first years, had um, full-time um, 
per persons from the EPA who came over as part of their career. They spent a year working in a congressional office. And the two I had in the 114th Congress spent most of their time working on uh, corridors legislation. This whole idea that there were pockets, there were islands of endangered or threatened species you couldn't interbreed. And so after lots of work with the constituent groups, you know, the folks like NatureServe, we came up with the Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act to specifically create two major funds to uh, let state and local governments put together the corridors to connect um, grizzly bears and Florida panthers and wolves and monarch butterflies, and not just um, fauna, but also the flora too. Right. Of course, uh, one of the things that's really important with corridors in the era of global change is allowing species to be able to move around in response to the changing environment around them. And of course, that's extremely hard for plants to do because they rely on the wind or other or animals or other things to help distribute their uh, seeds. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. And it's something that's often forgotten when people talk about wildlife, that plants are a critical part of wildlife. And Sean, as, as you know so well from NatureServe's work, there's this incredible destruction of habitat uh, everywhere, not just in the United States, but around the world. And you look at these plummeting numbers of, of vertebrates, of just animals of all kinds. It's uh, not, not just pollution. Um, so much of it is just habitat. Right. Yeah. One I mean, of the things that's tickled me is the, one of the pushbacks is people say, well, how will animals ever learn to use this? <laughs> and as you've seen, when you create the quarters, they figure it out right away. Yes, they do. There are uh, amazing images of animals using corridors, uh, man-made corridors, like bridges over highways that are built for the animals. And the animals pretty quickly figure out, oh, this is the way to get to the other side. And yeah, I mean, all you got to do is look at animals uh, rehabitating uh, the suburbs to know that they'll find a way. And we need to help they're, them they're, find that way. They're always a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah. So I was, one of the things that I thought about when I was looking at a map of Virginia and where the protected areas are and thinking about your Wildlife Corridors Act was um, the Appalachian Trail. And I know that you're an avid hiker of the trail and I'd love to know how much you've done and when you think you're gonna finish the thing. Um, but also it is essentially a corridor, right? Across the top of the mountains throughout the Eastern United States. And I think it's just, what inspired you to wanna do this project in the Appalachian Trail? Well, I, I went to college in a little village in Western Massachusetts, Williamstown, that the Appalachian Trail ran right through. And when, after Kent State, way back in 1970, the colleges all closed, they all shut down, and we just decided to hike home on the Appalachian Trail. We only made it one week, but it's been on my lifetime list of goals ever since. And I started again about 18 years ago. And so far from Springer Mountain, Georgia, to West Cornwall Bridge, Connecticut, and half of the, all the White Mountains and half of Maine. So 2023. And Sean, if I didn't have this job, which I love, I'd have finished a long time ago. <laughs> but you're, you're right. One of the most fun parts about the Appalachian Trail is that it is a wonderful, you know, 2,185 mile long corridor for, for and um, among the, the most favorite days to hike 
are the mornings after snowstorms oh, when you yeah. can see the tracks everywhere. And it's just that's quiet and peaceful. I love being in the woods after a snowfall. Um, so what's the what's the longest um, you've been out on the trail in the past 18 years in one stretch? Um, when we did the 100 mile wilderness in Maine, we were out for 10 days. Yeah, and uh, we were pretty smelly at the end, but it was wonderful fun. And you finished at Mount Katahdin, um, which is a, a, a difficult climb, although you can never see more than about six feet away the entire climb. Uh, so there, there was uh, there's no acrophobia because you couldn't see how far you're going to fall. Right, right. Well, that's fantastic. I love that you're doing that, and that's such a great project. And of course, it takes you to see a lot of really beautiful scenery in in the United States, and get the chance to experience lots of different states and cultures as you go through. And and lots of different wildlife experiences, also. Um, one of the, you know, I'd always thought that I'd like to through hike the whole thing, and just do it one six month, and I've always been too happily married to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but when you do it three or four or five days or a week at a time, you end up seeing uh, rural America, the villages, the, the little motels, the, the diners, the people. Yeah. In ways that really make you appreciate the country we have. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so back on more serious topics, um, we're in a new administration now, and there's obviously a huge new focus on environmental issues in the Biden administration, uh, whether it's rejoining the Paris Accords on climate change or uh, talking about 30 by 30. And I wonder if you could tell the listeners a little bit if you have any thoughts on our ability to achieve this as a, as a nation. Um, I do feel very confident about this. We're moving forward in so many different ways on the energy front. You know, that, um, well, just look at General Motors' electric vehicle ad in the Super Bowl the other day. Um, right. Or uh, we've pulled together a little working group on fusion energy um, that will have its first meeting uh, next week, just to primer on, on it. And something that's been 30 or 50 years away all of our lives is now five years away, um, which could have a dramatic impact on climate and on poverty. And... What, what I'm seeing is not just um, environmentalists or people who care deeply about it, but businesses and small governments, cities and counties, everyone else is committed to um, addressing climate in, in the most constructive way. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I, I feel, you know, and even through the last four years where you know, we, we, Government officials were not allowed to say the word climate change. It had to get scrubbed from every website and every document, and you couldn't go to conferences about it. We still made progress. That's um, true. Because it didn't all have to come from the federal government. Yeah. So um, one of the things that's exciting about all of that is, you know, not only does new energy ways help us address the, the carbon problem and therefore talk about climate change, but it also affects the way we use our landscape. And, you know, in, if we're able to actually achieve the goal of protecting 30% of America by 2030, it's going to take new ways of approaching problems, you know, whether it's fusion energy or solar or wind, as opposed to coal and other, other systems. Um, and, you know, we're, we're 
in a turning point really right now where you know we're at the we're on the precipice of climate change that's going to be so dramatic that it's going to be hard to recover from and these new energy systems like you were talking about are going to be so important and if we're if we actually achieve protecting 30% of america by 2030 wildlife corridors and um protection for roadless areas are going to be a big part of that and really going to make, a, I think, a huge difference. And so part of that, I think, I'm excited about Deb Holland as the new Secretary of Interior. Absolutely. Um, I, and Deb, of course, being the first Native American, the first American Indian uh, to, to lead Interior. Um, that, and I don't want to make this political at all, but um, in, in both the George Bush years and the Barack Obama years, there are significant commitments to national monuments. Mm. Bush has tended to be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which is still fine. Um, and Barack Obama had lots of stuff going on in, in southeastern Utah, which is just wonderful, that those things will be preserved and enhanced and expanded. And a lot happens at the state level, too. I mean, I know both when Governor Mark Warner and Governor Tim Kaine, back before they were senators, I think some of their proudest moments were the lands that they were set, able to set aside in mm -hmm. perpetuity in in, um, in Virginia. And sure. by the way, I'm also thrilled that we're going to have much more protection of the Alaskan landscape with the new Biden administration than we had. Absolutely. Just Joe Biden's early commitments to stopping new oil and gas leases on on federal lands. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous step in the right direction for three. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so important. Um, so I mentioned roadless areas uh, a minute ago and um, you've introduced legislation relatively recently on providing lasting protection for roadless areas in national forests. And I'm wondering, is that, um, was that also in response to constituents thinking about all the forests in Arlington and Alexandria? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, well, in, <laughs> not in Arlington and Alexandria, but I, um, I am very privileged that the constituency I represent has a very strong environmental consciousness. Um, and, and they wanna preserve these lands um, everywhere and, and the sense of wilderness. And maybe it's because when you live in an urban or semi-urban area, you have an even greater appreciation for the wilderness that, that's not surrounding you every day. Um, by the way, I think you, you, you reflect on a fundamental insight there. I served on the Natural Resources Committee for four years and still try to go to as many of those committee meetings as I can. And the fundamental debate there is who controls our federal lands. Um, if you're a, a a Utah cattle grazer or, or rancher um, or Montana, you tend to think, hey, my family's been here two or three or four generations. This is my land. And if you live in Arlington, Virginia, and you're American citizen contributing a lot of taxes, you think it belongs to all of us. And, and both are right and both are wrong. And there's a natural tension there. And one of the things that, that I want to do is make sure that we're championing the, the long-term vision for our public lands and, and preserving them and setting them aside and keeping them as wild as possible, I think reflects that long-term vision. It's, it's so important in those, especially those roadless areas, again, getting back to wildlife, being able to adapt to climate change and just sort of being able to live out their lives, um, providing protections to those areas. 
And in fact, NatureServe works very closely with the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service and other federal agencies to track what are the species on those lands and to understand what ones there are imperiled or endangered um, so that we can make sure that we're protecting the right areas and you know, providing the right um, conservation measures to ensure that their, their continued survival. You know, as you know, we're in the middle of the sixth great extinction. You know, we've, everybody knows about the, the asteroid killing all the dinosaurs and about some of the other mass extinction events in history. But what a lot of people don't appreciate is that that's happening right now, but it's being caused by humans as opposed to by some sort of natural phenomenon. And uh, species are going extinct at somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times of the, of the background rate. And uh, areas like roadless areas are going to be absolutely crucial to trying to preserve as many of the species as possible. And Sean, we're so lucky in America and, and in the world to have NatureServe that keeps uh, these biodiversity databases you know, so uh, meticulously and so well researched with so many different um, de detection resources. Um, you, you give us the information we need to make sure that we're, we're acting in the right ways, in the right places, and moving in the right direction. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it's, um, you know, we work with the natural heritage programs all across the country. So state agencies and other agent, other organizations everywhere, all contributing to this national resource that allows us to do a really sort of spectacular job of keeping track of what species are in the United States and what their conservation status is. And we really couldn't do it without the support from state government, as well as from uh, our federal partners uh, we also work pretty closely with the Department of Defense on some of their lands to help them protect endangered species and preserve biodiversity on the on the military bases, which is really exciting work. And I think something that most people don't really think about, but, you know, especially in certain parts of the country, the military has a lot of uh, owns a lot of land or controls a lot of land. You know, we, we are affecting people in uh, sort of fascinating ways. I. Um, there's a little country club in Alexandria where we play golf. And in a recent newsletter that the, the golf course groundskeeper talked about creating corridors um, for the, the foxes and the coyotes and um, that's great and, and habitat for the different birds that they want there. And so uh, you don't have to be running um, nature serve. Yeah, you can be at, at at a very different level and still be invested in trying to make a difference. It's such a great modern way to approach a golf course too, because historically they've been a little bit of wildlife deserts. And uh, to think about golf courses being managed to promote wildlife corridors and other sorts of habitat is really encouraging. Uh, it shows a whole new way of thinking about um, land use and, and a whole new attitude towards something like a golf course, which I'm very much in favor of. I don't get to play much golf in, in my current job, but I, I still treasure those occasional mornings when you're teeing off at seven o'clock and you see the mama bear and her cub run across the fairway. Yeah. And actually living um, up here in Arlington and Alexandria, one of the great success stories of um, endangered species protection in America is the bald eagle. And uh, regularly I see bald eagles flying down the Potomac river, um, even sometimes from the window of my office. And Every time I, I do that, I sort of have a, <laughs> I have a little bit of a patriotic moment where I think, um, 
you know, the Congress has done some things that have been truly amazing. And uh, I think the Endangered Species Act is one of those really amazing achievements. You know, and as fragile as our environment is, the sixth extinction, we also see when we set land or sea aside, it recovers. Mm -hmm. um, Jane Lubchenco, who was head of NOAA in uh, Obama first term, um, talked to me about how with the marine sanctuaries, after they'd been in existence for a year or two, you could tell them from satellites because the edges, the perimeters of them were aligned with fishing boats <laughs> because the fish had recovered so quickly that they would all stay right outside the perimeter just to fish. And get the ones that went out, yeah. And eventually and we look the, at the recovery the the where that of, is. Uh, of wolves in America. You know, yeah. where, where they're protected, they come roaring back. Yeah, it's, it's a testament to the, the power of nature and to the importance of protecting these areas. Um, so one question I like to ask people in these conversations, um, and for the most part, I've been talking to people who are steeped in and their career is in the environment. Um, and yours is much broader than that. Um, so I don't know what direction you'll go with your answer, but uh, sort of the when you're looking back on your career, whenever you decide that you're done working, um, if that if that ever comes, what's what's an achievement that you will look back on and say, that's something that like I did that and that's important and I'm I'm so glad that I was there to make that happen. It could be about the environment. It could be about something yeah. else. Um, I think the of the, the the things I've had a chance to be part of over the years, I think the one that, that has the most emotional resonance for me is working on, on high school dropout prevention. Um, you know, for 15 years, I was chairman of the board of Virginia's, I think, most successful high school dropout prevention thing. We do about a thousand kids a year. Mm. And um, it, it often, it was school to graduation to work. So kids, and we would take the, the kids at most risk in a given population and mentor them immensely. In ways, it's parallel to the notion of the, the fish coming back in the, in the monuments or the wolves coming back mm -hmm. in Western Michigan, that you take a, a child with lots of barriers to success and give them a caring adult and they finish school and they go to college and they get a good job. And, and that resonates and reverberates through the generations to their brothers and sisters and to their children. Absolutely. And, and ultimately it makes, you know, the world a safer and a better place. Yeah. And yeah, that's absolutely a super important thing. And of course, when I, it reminds me of, you know, the teachers in my life who've changed my life, essentially, you know, a teacher of a certain subject matter or a teacher who said something and, uh, having uh being in school is where you have the opportunity sometimes to interact with people who can inspire you to do great things and so keeping people keeping kids in school is really important for so many different reasons yeah yeah that's, that's great the, the whole notion of uh you know you still ultimately have to change the world one life at a time mm -hmm. and so every person you can influence in that way um you know there, there's a pay it forward part of that. 
for sure. Yeah. Well, I certainly have seen the the benefit over many years of the the bread on water approach. You know, you 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 do the best you can. You do good in any way that occurs to you, and, and do your damnedest not to worry about any of it coming back. And then it all comes back more than you ever expected, anyway. No, that's uh, inspiring. It's interesting. Um, well, Don, I wonder if you have any, um, you've said some nice things about NatureServe, which is excellent. Um, but I wonder if you had any questions or um, things you were wondering about related to biodiversity or anything. And you've, you've got a captive audience here that you can ask questions of if you have well, any. Well, Sean, one thing, you, you know, before we started the podcast, you talked about just finishing a strategic plan for nature, sir. Yes. I'd love to know what your big picture vision is for nature, sir. Yeah. So the big picture vision for nature, sir, is we, we are currently the best resource for biodiversity data in North America. We work across all of the states and of course the Canadian provinces and territories to assemble and collate all of these data. But what we need to do is bring in more sources of data. The, the data that we do best right now is what we call boots on the ground. So people out in the field gathering very high quality, high resolution data. But you can't afford to do that everywhere and you can't afford to do it on large scales. And so taking citizen science data, taking drone data, taking remote sense data from satellites and bringing all of that information together and using artificial intelligence and cloud computing to be able to do a really effective job of understanding what and where the appropriate habitat are for species is a big part of our future. Uh, it's gonna be, I think, a big part of uh, planning for places to preserve in the 30 by 30 effort. So if we're gonna preserve 30% of the country, let's make sure we preserve areas that have high biodiversity in them. Um, and so, as we think about this, we're developing relationships with America's greatest tech firms to develop out the artificial intelligence capabilities and the cloud computing capabilities so that we can bring in all of these data. And then we need to make sure that the data get into the hands of the people who need to use it. And so we want to, we're building tools to put this information out on the web. We have a tool right now called NatureServe Explorer where people can go and look up information about um, threatened and endangered species and other species as well. And we're doing also map-based versions of this where you can look at a very specific area and see what species live in that area. And as we build out the modeling capability and the ability to integrate more data, we'll have finer and finer resolution on what is on the landscape. And what that means is that we can combine the best data on biodiversity with protection measures and with sustainable economic development. Because if you know where something is, you can work proactively to protect it and avoid harming it when say you have to, if you have to build a road or if you have to build a school or something and you have the opportunity to know where you can put it while also protecting biodiversity, uh, that's, that's where really where we wanna work. We wanna work with environmental groups and we wanna work with the government and we wanna work with industry for the best outcomes for biodiversity. And so building these tools and integrating more data sources is the direction that we're heading. 
That, that just sounds terrific. And, and I'm, you know, when we first spoke, I don't think we talked about artificial intelligence at all. I don't think we <laughs> so did. So the, the world true. has changed in, in very constructive ways. In just a couple of years, um, our relationship with Microsoft's AI for Earth program and Amazon Web Services Imagine Grant program have really transformed the way that we think about data and analyzing data. And it's uh, it's going to have great, wonderful impacts uh, on, on society. One of the things you told me a couple of years ago is that this actually is something that even a conservative pro-business Republican can, can jump on because it helps to define both where the animals are and where the animals aren't. Correct. Yes. Uh, so it, you don't have to perhaps use as broad a brush as you might need to because of your data. Right. It's, it's a really important point. And one of the things that these map-based tools that we have allow us to do is for people to identify, oh, well, if I build here, I'm going to have a very small impact on biodiversity. And you can overlay floodplains and wetlands and all sorts of different layers to come up with the, you know, economic development has to happen. We know things are going to be built in the future. We know people need new houses and new roads. And so let's proactively work to do it in the in the most responsible way. And you're you're right that the data that we're gathering with the help of thousands of people across the country is what's going to make that possible. It's also very, it's fun to think that a lot of this is done by by volunteers, by people who live in the communities and are contributing to it. It's it's one of the exciting things about the modern era and you know, our phones with our ability to use iNaturalist or eBird to record information about wildlife and put it out there. And then organizations like NatureServe and others can incorporate that into conservation decision-making tools. And it, it what it means is instead of having a thousand people collecting data, you can have millions of people collecting data. And it really ch changes the nature of, of the questions that you can ask. And it's very, very exciting. So when when we first talked to Sean some years ago, we talked about the investment that the federal government, among others, could make in determining appropriate habitats for, for a given species, you know, that you could do sort of one species at a time. Right. Um, so I, I have a friend who insists he took a picture of, a, of an eastern cougar um, which uh, maybe or maybe not. I just finished a book on wolverines. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the book, there was a big plea to put wolverines on the threatened list. And then I looked it up and the Fish and Wildlife says there, there are too many of them. It'd be fun to find out, you know, wh where reality is on things like Eastern cougars or the wolverines. Well, so that's actually one of the things that NatureServe's data allows us to do is we look at species sort of on the global scale but we also can look at them at a regional scale and at the state scale, because all of the states have their own version of an Endangered Species Act. So there may actually be species in Virginia that are threatened or endangered that are not threatened and endangered in Pennsylvania. And so we would treat those species differently in those two different jurisdictions. And so um, it is definitely true that there are species, um, well, a great example for people who live around here, uh, the white-tailed deer, you would not consider to be a species that needs any sort of special protection in Virginia. But as you move further west, 
there are states where the white-tailed deer is essentially an endangered species. Now, they may not be going to extra lengths to protect them because overall they're so successful, um, but it, you know, the range of a species actually matters and it may differ in different places, the, how they're doing. And of course, with global change, um, all of these things are going are gonna to be different as certain species are able to react more quickly and change their location, whether it's going upslope or moving north or south, depending on the, on the situation. Um, and so it's really important to have these spatially explicit data because how we need to protect these things is going to change over time. And that's, that's one of the things that we're able to do with the network that we have. Those white-tailed deer you talk about became one of the most central arguments to our corridors legislation. Because just in Virginia alone, I believe there are 6,000 deer car interactions a year. <laughs> and and an, enormous, <laughs> an enormous body shop bill that comes from um, the collisions between wildlife and our automobiles. Yeah, and if they had a way to get across the road without jumping in front of my car, I would really appreciate that. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Congressman, it's been great chatting with you today, and we really appreciate all that you're trying to do to uh, protect wildlife. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with your uh, wildlife corridors bill and with your uh, roadless areas protection act. We um, are very excited about those and the potential that they have to promote protection of wildlife in America. And I feel like this is the year that will happen. We got corridors through the House in, in 2020, but not the Senate. But now it's a it's a friendlier Senate. Yes. Uh, and we're likely to get a big infrastructure bill that's bipartisan and bicameral. And uh, this is where those things will happen. And I'm, I'm, I wish you great success with 30 by 30. Uh, you, you and I are both fans of Professor Ed Wilson, E.O. Yes, Wilson are. at Harvard, whose, whose book Half Earth I have recommended to many. He, he's going for the full 50%. Full 50, I know. Um, politically, it's probably challenging, especially to do by 2030, but maybe a 50 by 50 is is in our future. But we'll be at zero fossil fuels by then anyway. Right? That's right. That's right. Well, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate that. Um, you coming to talk to us today and um, all that you're doing in Congress and uh, best of luck and uh, be sure to let us know. Um, we'd love to have you come back on when you finish the whole AT and uh, you okay. can tell us some and of your some of your top stories from that experience. I, I have to finish because I, I need to start the Pacific Crest Trail soon. Oh, excellent. Good luck. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks all for right. all you do with nature. Sir. My pleasure. If you enjoy conservation conversations and are interested in similar content, check out In Defense of Plants, available on all major platforms. Every week, Matt shares fantastic evolutionary stories from the botanical world, from the smallest duckweed to the tallest redwood. NatureServe's own lead botanist, Anne Francis, is an upcoming guest on the podcast, so be sure to tune in. Also, on February 16th, look out for Matt's new book called In Defense of Plants. That wraps up this episode of Conservation Conversations. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, and until next time, thanks for listening.